If somebody becomes a Christian, what's required of them? Will they be able to live a sin-free, perfect life? What is the nature of the law in the New Covenant? If you sin, will you lose your salvation? What did Jesus mean by things like, Think not that I come to destroy the law, and if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Let me start with my conclusion and answer these questions in a plain, easy-to-understand way, and then I will go into a lengthy technical discussion to show the details of how and why this works from the Bible. Being sin-free is technically possible to those who have been truly saved, but it has never been achievable. However, you can and will be freed from the habitual power of sin in your life eventually, if you have indeed been born again, that is to say, truly saved. This should first manifest in the big sins in your life, and it is accomplished by the new desire to quit sinning, sometimes called the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The process, however, can be a slow one or a fast one, depending on your level of commitment to making Jesus Lord of your life. The more you make him boss in your heart, the faster this process will go. For example, it took me some time to beat major addictions in my life after becoming saved, even a few years regarding one particular one. But the fact is that I did beat those major sins eventually, and not only that, I'm freed from the bondage of desire to do them as well. And the process was one of continued and steady progress, although there were stumblings and fallings along the way. But even those stumblings encouraged me more to return to the process of trying to beat sin that I was slave to. But in many cases, Christ totally takes away the desires for those big types of sins at the moment of salvation. I'm not sure why my process was a bit different, although it was. Although you can't be perfect, you should be in the process of being perfected, and that process will continue your entire life. Many years later, I still struggle with sins, but they are sins that I'm not even sure I would have called sins when I was first saved. Although to me now, they are just as big and as important to defeat as the so-called big ones were back then. In fact, if a person has claimed to be a Christian for many years and is still a slave to major sins and addictions and such, then it is likely that they are not truly saved, and I would encourage them to repent, that is, to change their mind about their sin, and to change their mind about not following Christ, and be willing to put all of your sin and all of your life on the table. Without Him, we have no power to change our hearts, no power to truly desire Him, or to desire holiness, or hate sin. Salvation is a supernatural thing, that God does to people. That is what the New Covenant is all about. Now, let me explain all this from the Bible. I want to start in a place that does not get quoted all that often. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So it says here that at the moment of hearing the gospel and believing in him, that is the moment of salvation, something happens. It says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Then it says something pretty radical. It says that the presence of the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. Now the inheritance of the believer is many things, eternal life, resurrection, reigning with Christ, everything. 
This seems to suggest strongly that the presence of the Holy Spirit in your heart at salvation is the proof that you have been saved once and for all. The word there for guarantee is very strong in the Greek language. It's kind of like a down payment, which is proof of future payment. And this is not the only time that it speaks of this. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 5 says, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I want to show you why the Bible can be so bold about this claim, and why it can say that if you see evidence of the Holy Spirit in your heart, then you are saved forever. I suggest that if you really understand the Bible and the Old Testament and New Testament together, you will see exactly why this is such a monumental event. But first, since this is so important, let's take a look at some of the evidences of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, many of you might remember your salvation experience very clearly. You may have had a powerful experience where the Holy Spirit's coming into your heart and life was very obvious and wonderful. For me, it was not very obvious at first, but it soon became clear as the months progressed that I had indeed been saved and given the Holy Spirit. A good place to start is Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Okay, so these things are the so-called fruit of the Spirit. That is, if you have the Spirit, these are the things that will begin to develop over time. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. These things will never be perfect in your life. Perfect love, for instance, is only found in God, but you will notice this fruit in your life in the same way you notice the fruit on a tree in its season. In fact, you might not even know what kind of tree it is until the fruit shows up. Perhaps this is the idea that Jesus had in mind when he said, you will know them by their fruit. Jesus also claims to be the only way you will be able to bear this kind of fruit. In John 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of salvation. It's the proof of salvation. Jesus seems to back that idea up here by saying that unless you have him, you cannot bear fruit. Therefore, it follows that if you bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you have him and he has you. But let's back up. We need to explore the idea of why his spirit in us is so important to God and how the Bible can be so bold as to say that it is somehow the guarantee or proof of salvation. In the Old Testament, there were prophecies about a new covenant coming, one that would be different somehow than the one he made with Moses. The book of Hebrews confirms that the following promises are speaking of the covenant that Jesus was talking about when he said, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So this new covenant that happened on the cross would be about remission of sins. So let's look at some of the prophecies in the Old Testament about this new covenant to see what else we can discover about it. Jeremiah 31:31 in the Old Testament says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
verse 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, so first of all, although this is talking about Israel, and I do believe will ultimately include Israel as well before it's all over with, the book of Hebrews does make it clear that these prophecies are referring to the church and to the new covenant, which we have through Jesus Christ as well. So take notice of a few characteristics of this covenant. It will include God writing his law on people's hearts, a deep level of knowing God, a forgiveness of sins, and a forgetting of sins. In the next chapter, we get a little more information about this covenant. It says, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts, so that they will not depart from me. Here again, we see this covenant associated with putting something in our hearts. In this case, it's called fear. This is not the same kind of fear that we normally think of in English, apparently, because God says that this is the effect of it. I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Another Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, also speaks of this covenant. He says this in Ezekiel 37:26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle shall also be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is an interesting one. Not only do we find the same elements here about this new covenant that he plans on making, a deep knowing of God, an everlasting, unconditional covenant, but we see more about how he plans to accomplish this change in the hearts of people. He plans to himself dwell with them. He says, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Now, he mentions that this sanctuary will be his spirit in their hearts a chapter earlier when he says of this new covenant, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and to do them. This is interesting because at the time, God's chosen way to dwell with his people was in a very specific temple, in a very specific room in that temple. And we hear about this way back in Exodus when God was telling them how specifically to construct this place. He said in Exodus 25 verse 8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now, this is the same word that Ezekiel uses. This would have been amazing to a Jewish person at the time of Ezekiel. God was prophesying that a day was coming in which he would not dwell in the sanctuary of the temple, but he would dwell in each one of his people, and his presence would change the very nature of a person as a result of him abiding in them. Again, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is why in the new covenant, each believer is referred to as the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So a good question would be, why did God have to wait until after the cross to be able to dwell in the hearts of men? Why did it have to wait until the new covenant? I mean, after all, the Holy Spirit is mentioned in the Old Testament several times. And that is true, but there are some notable differences between the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So let's explore it a little bit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit's coming upon men was the sovereign choice of God, rather than God's response to the initiative of men. 
Generally speaking, men did not expect the Spirit of God to come upon them, nor did they do anything to prompt it. The Spirit's coming upon men in the Old Testament was, as a rule, not the result of their great spirituality, nor did it necessarily result in spirituality. That is to say, when the Spirit came upon men, they possessed supernatural ability or power. That power or ability was not unlimited, but generally was limited to certain tasks, abilities, or functions, like prophesying, or building, or ruling effectively. Basically, anything that God wanted to do, he often did in this way. That power did not necessarily make the recipient more spiritual. Samson, for example, was overcome by the Holy Spirit, but his life was a moral disaster. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament also is not a permanent state. Often, it is referred to as leaving those that it once empowered. So, what was prophesied about God dwelling in his people as he dwelled in the Holy of Holies, and that this dwelling would change their hearts and minds, was a totally new concept than anything anyone had ever heard of. So again, why did this have to wait until after the cross to be able to happen? There are two basic answers to that question. God is holy, and man is sinful. God is so holy that when he did dwell in the sanctuary in the temple, he dwelled behind a thick veil in a place called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could enter that room, and he could only enter it one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. And even as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to make some meticulous preparations. He had to wash himself, put on special clothing, bring burning incense to let the smoke cover his eyes from a direct view of God. He had to have his own personal sins carefully atoned for before he could enter, and he could of course not sin while he was in there, or he would die. They used to tie a rope around his ankle in case he did die, so that they could pull him out without having to go in themselves. Such is the holiness of God. In the book of Habakkuk 1 verse 13, it says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannot look on wickedness. Psalm chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. The problem should be obvious as to why God's promise about unconditionally dwelling with his people forever in their hearts is a bit of a problem. No one could ever keep the Holy Spirit. He would either have to leave every time we sinned, or if he didn't leave, we would die as soon as we sinned. One thing is for sure, God has not become less holy, nor has his standards changed one bit. Nothing less than absolute perfectness is required in order to receive the Holy Spirit, and that perfectness must be maintained forever. Jesus made it clear that the law is not only not going anywhere when he said, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We'll talk more about that verse later. In fact, he not only said it wasn't going anywhere, he then made it clear that it was a matter of the heart and therefore even tougher to do than even the Pharisees who appeared to be righteous were doing. Matthew 5:27 and 28 says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her in his heart. He even concluded that chapter by saying these words, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Nothing but complete and perfect righteousness is required to be saved. 
God cannot dwell with anything, either on earth or in heaven, that has not been declared to be righteous. Jesus also said in Matthew 5.20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what do we do now? Well, don't worry, this story is only halfway told. We need to know what this verse means in the book of Galatians. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So it would seem that righteousness doesn't come by the law, and if it does, then Christ died in vain. Okay, let's tie that one in with this verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For he, that is God, made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, that is he put our sin on Jesus, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it would seem that it is Christ bearing our sin on the cross that makes us righteous if we accept it. And I explain exactly how this happens in a 15-minute video called What Do I Have to Do to Be Saved? If you're concerned about that, watch that video and come back to this one. But let me briefly explain how it works. God made Christ sin. That is, he put your sin on Christ and punished him for all that you have done so that God's just and good wrath for sin could be satisfied and completed on Jesus, and that God could remain a good and perfect judge and still forgive. That is because the debt had actually been paid in full. And the second part of that verse says that he did this for the purpose of making us righteous, which is accomplished because Christ gives us his righteousness to be covered with, to be seen by God with, to replace our imperfect record with his. He was actually righteous. He totally obeyed the law and deserved to go to heaven. It is that righteousness that he gives us to trust in before God. A switch has been made on the cross. You gave Christ your sin to be punished, and he, in exchange, gives you his righteousness. This is called propitiation. John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Also in 1 John chapter 2, it says this, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you ever get a chance, you should pick up the Bible and read the entire chapter of Isaiah chapter 53. It amazes me every time I read it that it was provably written hundreds of years before Christ's death. But one important part of that chapter says this about the Messiah that suffers the wrath of God so that we can be justified before God. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 11, He, that is God, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So when God looks at you in terms of your rightness before God, if you're saved, he sees Christ and not your sins. There's a good illustration of this in the Old Testament with something called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is basically the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the only item that was in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Remember, that's the place that God dwelled. And on top of this lid, it had two golden angels or cherubim that were facing one another. And God's Spirit, His Holy Spirit, 
was said to dwell between those cherubim. In Psalm 99.1, it says, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the tablets of the Ten Commandments and a few other items. The day when the high priest entered, it was his job to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed lamb on the mercy seat. This would make atonement for the sins of the people of Israel that were not already covered by their regular sacrifices during the year. It could be said, therefore, that God's Spirit, dwelling between the cherubim, which were looking down, did not see the broken tablets of the law, but instead saw the blood of the Lamb. This may be why John the Baptist, who knew about the prophecies made by Isaiah and others, said, when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God, that takes away the sin of the world. He knew that the new covenant of reconciliation to God was coming very soon. In the book of Romans, there is one of only two times in the Bible where the specific word for mercy seat was used. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it's translated there as propitiation, and it's the actual word used for mercy seat in the Old Testament. Now, there are other times that the word propitiation is used in the New Testament, but only two times where it is the exact same word used for the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. So Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or mercy seat through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he may be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting, then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith, without the deeds of the law. Basically, if you repent and believe in the gospel, you will be justified before God. You will receive Christ's righteousness, which means that God, who now sees you as totally accepted, your sins forgotten, you can now be an acceptable temple of God. And that brings us back to the verse that started this whole thing off. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the fact that we have been given the Spirit is the very proof of our salvation. Because if we have the Spirit of God in us and we're not dead, we know that we must be viewed by God with Christ's righteousness and not our works. So this brings us to the question of sanctification. That's the process of your changing from the old person to the new person. The process of changing from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. The process of those fruits of the Spirit developing on your tree. This is where many people get confused. Before we get started on this, we need to make something very clear. Not everyone that says they are saved are saved, especially nowadays. About a hundred years ago, the idea started to become popular to tell people that they were saved if they raised their hand and agreed to a few questions. This is not what the Bible says. It says to repent and believe the gospel. 
Again, I explain exactly what that means in my video, What Do I Have to Do to Be Saved? As a result of this bad theology, many people believe that they are saved even though they have no evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life, and even though their lives are totally governed by sin. So as I progress, know that I'm talking about those who have truly been saved. So when the truly saved sin, what happens? Do they lose the Holy Spirit? No, that wouldn't make any sense. In that case, the presence of his Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation could in no way be said to be a seal or a guarantee of eternal life. It would be way too easy to lose. But they do grieve the Holy Spirit when they sin. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Notice in this passage, it's exhorting those in Ephesus to flee from sins, big ones and small ones. Two important things to notice here. It says that when one sins as a believer, it grieves the Holy Spirit. But notice also that in the same sentence, it still refers to it as the seal until the day of redemption. It's not going anywhere, even if you sin. It is still your guarantee of salvation, but it will grieve God, and it is that grieving that is the engine of your sanctification. It is in that sense that Jesus is like a shepherd, and his followers are like sheep. If a sheep goes astray, it is the shepherd who goes after it, and Jesus is a good shepherd. His coming after you is accomplished by the Spirit's conviction of sin in your life. After I was saved, I simply got to a point eventually where I could no longer resist the Spirit's conviction and had to take steps to rid myself of certain sins. It was His doing more than it was mine. The love of God that now dwells in your heart will begin, sometimes slowly at first, to cause you to want to turn from sin and to cause you to want to strive for holiness. No longer are you doing this out of obligation or fear of judgment. You're doing it out of a new love, a new power that's not yours. Galatians 3.23-25 says this, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The reason that we're no longer under a tutor is that we're finally able to receive God's Spirit and reconciliation with Him, and that He has written His law on our hearts, just as it was prophesied that He would. This is why that interesting line is at the end of the verse about the fruits of the Spirit. I'll read it again. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. This stumps the unsaved and the legalists, and I secretly believe that they don't even believe that this is true, that this can happen to one's heart. The unsaved can only speak of salvation, as the blind speak of color. There are two things that unsaved people who would call themselves Christians do at this point. One is that they'll take the verses about grace and use them as a license for sin. They might say, 
I see all these verses about grace in the New Testament, and I said the sinner's prayer, so I guess I'm good. I can do whatever I want now, and I'm saved no matter what. Hopefully you can see the error in that now. They're missing the first part of all this, the new covenant, the relationship with God, his Holy Spirit living in the tabernacle of their heart and changing their desires. Grace only works if you are, in fact, saved. The other thing that the unsaved person will do in the absence of the Spirit of God is that they will heap up for themselves all kinds of laws to follow. So it's the other extreme. One unsaved person says, I don't need to do anything. And the other unsaved person says, I've got to do everything. I feel like they do this so they can have some kind of outward reason that they can hold on to that gives them the comfort that they are right with God. I truly think that they think that on the day of judgment, they will give a defense of themselves before God about how many things they did do or how many things they did not do. The Church of Galatia in the Bible were Christians. They were Gentile Christians. But false teachers had crept in and told them that they had to start keeping the Jewish law in order to, I guess, be extra saved. In Galatians 5, chapter 3, the rebuke comes and it says, I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So it's dangerous to think that you're justified by what you do or don't do, as opposed to the power and presence of God. This is important. Sins and even good deeds do not change your status before God if you are saved. If you are saved, you are always viewed with Christ's righteousness. Therefore, his view of you in terms of your rightness before him does not go up or down depending on your actions. It's always a flat line. Sins and good deeds do have inherent built-in consequences for them. If you sin, it's going to have physical and spiritual consequences. And if you do good deeds, they also have physical and spiritual consequences. But think how absurd it is to think that you can be more saved or more justified by doing good deeds like giving money to the poor or walking an old lady across the street. If you want to do it that way, then nothing less than absolute perfection is required. And it's just as absurd to think that you're going to get less saved by doing bad deeds if you really understand what the gospel means. Sometimes a new believer can be pretty anxious about this. Perhaps they were like me and their development is pretty slow, even though it is steady. Back then, even though I was saved, I still had many, well, pretty big sins that I was still doing, even though I was getting super convicted about them. It would have been scary for me at the time, just after salvation, to analyze my life to see if I was developing the fruits of the Spirit in my life, because it was so slow at first. So, if you're a brand new believer, don't be too critical. Nowadays, I'm supremely confident that there's no other way I could be where I am if it were not for the Spirit's work in my life. But on the other hand, if it has been a long time, even years since you have professed to be a Christian, and you are still just as much in sin as the day you began, don't fool yourself. You aren't saved, and you need Christ. Finally, let's move on to some of the things that confuse people about some of Jesus' statements. They point to him saying things like, Be ye perfect, and all the ways that he talked about how the law was really, really serious, and how he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and all that. Then they cap it all off with Matthew 5.17, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
and then they conclude that we need to follow the Ten Commandments to be saved, or that Jesus only saved us so that we could now follow perfectly the law. They might not say that exactly, but it's certainly what they imply. Some of the people who realize that the rest of the New Testament obviously disagrees with the idea that we're saved by works say something like, I only listen to Jesus' words, and they effectively throw out the rest of the Bible. So, for their sakes, I'll prove to you everything we've been saying here today with my arm tied behind my back, so to speak. I will show you that Jesus' version of salvation and the New Covenant and the rest of the Bibles is exactly the same. The first thing to understand about the Gospel accounts, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that they were a narrative of what happened. There's not a ton of explanations or theology behind what happened. Take the most important event in the Gospels, the cross. You hear the details of what went down, the nails, the gambling for clothing, etc., but you don't hear a whole lot of theology about it. The apostles don't provide us with much help. They didn't really even know what was going on themselves with the crucifixion. To me, one of the most interesting scenes in the Gospels is when Jesus apparently explains to his apostles why this had to happen from the scriptures in an interesting walk with them after he had risen from the dead. But the details of that conversation are not given to us. It says in Luke 24, 25-27, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So what I'm trying to get you to understand here is that Christ didn't come here just to teach us to obey the law. He had Moses and the prophets for that. To look at the Gospels and simply read what Christ said and forget what he did would be missing the most important part, and it would set you up for the biggest error you could ever make. Let's review the facts. Jesus did not get crucified by accident. He told the disciples it was going to happen several times before it happened, and even that he would rise again three days later. And not only was it not an accident, he was controlling every detail. Did you know that he arranged beforehand to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey on the very day and in the very gate that the prophets said that the Messiah would? Did you also know that that just happened to be the day that the people in Jerusalem would choose for themselves and their families the Passover lamb that they would sacrifice three days later? Did you know that three days later on the Passover, the Jews did not want to kill him on a holy day at all? But Jesus essentially forced their hand and made them act on it? Did you know that Jesus deliberately did not take the last drink of wine at the Passover meal that would have ceremonially closed the meal and instead waited till he took the sour wine on the sponge while he was on the cross and only then did he say the words, It is finished, and gave up his spirit. Jesus was God Almighty. He could have come down from that cross at any time. It was his will to be there for your sake. If you forget that Jesus was doing something and not just teaching something, you may be missing more than you think. He knew that he was going to bear the wrath of God for the sins of the world. That's why he was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew he was going to take all the punishment for your sin so you could be reconciled to God and he could put his spirit in you and change you. This is why when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus did not rebuke him. So back to the things that he said. 
Let's take this one first, Matthew 5:17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. How did Jesus fulfill the law? Well, in a few ways. He fulfilled the doctrinal teachings of the law in that he brought full revelation of the law. Jesus fulfilled the predictive prophecy of the law in that he is the promised one, showing the reality behind the shadows. Number three, Jesus fulfilled the law in that he was perfectly obedient to the law, thereby being the only one that could save us. Jesus did not come in opposition to the law, and the law has not passed away. Everybody's sins will be judged by the last letter of the law. The only question is, are your sins going to be punished in the future on Judgment Day, or are they going to be punished 2,000 years ago on the cross? Now, what about this saying? John 14:15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Before we discuss the meaning of this verse, we need to first find out what his commandments are. Most people assume that he's talking about the Ten Commandments, and they say that we must keep the Ten Commandments to be saved, even though it's a contradiction to the rest of Scripture and makes the gospel of no effect. But thankfully, you will see that the Bible does not want us to be ignorant about which commandments Jesus is speaking about here. If you do a word search in the New Testament for the word commandments and look for all the places that Jesus spoke of them, you'll find that he did indeed refer to the Ten Commandments and to the commandments of God several times. But he referred to them every time as either the Father's commandments or the Law's commandments or the commandments. He never refers to any of them as his commandments. Now, to be sure, I think that Jesus was God himself and that his commandments are the Ten Commandments, but when Jesus was on earth, he did not speak of the Ten Commandments as his. What we just read about Jesus talking about his commandments was said at the Last Supper. Now, just before that, at the same Last Supper, just after Judas left the room to go betray Jesus, Jesus had told them what his commandment was. John thirteen thirty four and 35 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So, when Jesus talks about his commandment a few minutes later, it's clear that he's referring to this commandment. I can't even begin to tell you the importance of this verse to the apostles. And this is going to be referred to again and again all throughout the New Testament. Two things to notice about this new commandment that Jesus himself gives. Number one, it's about loving your brother, that is, loving one another. And it is specifically his commandment that he gives. Number two, it is by this specifically that people will know if we are truly his disciples. Now that is going to be very important. Jesus does not ever give any other signs of evidence of salvation except this one thing, if you love one another. So as we look at references to this commandment in the New Testament, notice the connection it has with this evidence of salvation. John the Apostle, many years after he wrote the Gospel of John, wrote some letters, and they're also in the Bible. And it's fair to say that the singular focus of his letters is this new commandment about brotherly love given by Jesus. He refers to it over and over. 1 John 2 verse 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And again, notice that when talking about his, as in Jesus' commandment, it is always tied to the evidence or proof 
of our discipleship. John does not leave us guessing as to what this commandment is specifically. 1 John 3, 23 and 24, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby, listen to this, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. I want to read more verses from John's letters about this so you can be really sure about this. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death to life. Okay, so he's talking about salvation. This is how we know that we have been saved. Because we love the brethren, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Do you see the pattern yet? This loving your brother thing, this new commandment, Jesus' specific commandment, is the very evidence a believer has of salvation. What about 1 John 4, 12 and 13? It says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. I hope you're starting to get the picture. When Jesus refers back to the new commandment that he gave them and says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he's saying that it is the proof that the spirit is in you. It will begin to bear fruit. A legalist looks at this verse the exact opposite. They say, keeping the commandment is not the evidence of salvation, it is the requirement of salvation. I hope you see the very important difference there. Let's continue looking at these verses. As I said, the New Testament is very consistent on this. Let's finish up first with John in his second letter. He says the following, And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment, that as ye have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So you see here again, he refers to this new commandment, Jesus' commandment, the one about loving one another, and it's directly connected to a conversation about who is and who isn't a real Christian. Galatians says something interesting when it says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. That's interesting. There is a law that is Christ's law specifically. And Galatians says it is to bear one another's burdens. Now the reason all these New Testament writers referred to it like this is that Jesus made it so clear. In fact, towards the end of that Last Supper, Christ reiterates again and defines what his commandment, this new commandment, is. In John 15, 12, and 13 it says, This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle James, the brother of the Lord, refers to this commandment of Jesus as the royal law. He says in James 2, verse 8, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And James also talks about this law in regard to the works that prove your faith. The consistency in this is overwhelming. And how many times have you heard the following verses and somebody was using it to tell you that salvation was by works? 
Perhaps now, as we read these verses, you're going to hear James as he's meant to be heard. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith with thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying, Okay, you say you're a Christian, but we know about the royal law, so prove it. If you say that you have the love of Christ in your hearts, do we see any evidence of it in your loving one another? So, again, remember Jesus' words in Matthew twenty-six, twenty-eight: For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. When he was saying the New Testament, which literally means New Covenant, he was not making something up. He is referencing the prophets who spoke of a coming king who would take upon him the sins of the world and be crushed by God's wrath so that God could forget the sins of his people and begin to indwell them and change them from the inside out. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four says, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sins I will remember no more. So where does all this leave us? Do we even strive for holiness? Do we try to eradicate sin in our lives? How does this affect our earnest desire to live godly lives? Strive for holiness with all your heart. There's no reason why we shouldn't be diligent in eradicating sin. You know, think of yourself as kind of a sin assassin. All sins are leading to death. All sins are stealing joy and destroying your lives. We now have the power to resist them, so we definitely should. Thank the Lord for setting the bar so high with his life and his teachings. And let us strive to reach holiness. But if you stumble on the way, God is not mad at you. You have not lost your salvation. Don't listen to the devil who is your accuser. And after you sin, he whispers in your ear, Don't go to God. He's mad at you. It's a lie. Run to God. It's not like you can hide anything from him anyway. He wants to hear from you about it. He wants to help you through it. He wants to help you learn from it. If nothing else, pray for more and more conviction of sin so that your sin will become increasingly detestable to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to Nowhere to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at NowhereToRunRadio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.